is going to be really interesting and a very timely topic right now. We got the Amazon and the west coast of U.S. and Canada with a lot of wildfires right now. Floods recently in Western Europe, India, China that have destroyed cities. Many people are still missing. So your company, Rising Farms, of which you are the president, is trying to change farming to have it be ready for climate change. Could you tell us some of the premise behind that? Exactly. Like you were saying, Gabby, uh, the climate's extremeness for the past years is just showing us and giving us a pretty clear warning that we don't have much time to curb things before it's too late. We are treating this planet like we have unlimited resources, but this is a place with limited resources. There's a lot of people that talk about financial inclusion as one of the cornerstones of impact and sustainability. 70% of the planet's fresh water resources are already being used in agriculture. We need to do more with less. What we think we need to do is not make open field profitable, but migrating to an indoor farming model where you're not just protecting yourself from extreme weather. We're seeing phenomena of rain where it does not rain or not raining where it should rain. The seasons are not as marked as they used to. This is putting a strain into open field farmers that you can solve with indoor farming. At a high-tech indoor farming facility, we're able to produce 20 to 30 times the yield per square meter using 90% less water per pound produced. By doing 20 times more per square meter, what you could understand is that we need 20 times less land. There's no better impact than being able to feed the world. There's no financial inclusion if people can't eat. In Mexico for the past two years, extreme weather brings a lot of waste to crops. A lot of farmers lose their entire crops because of, of too much rain, hailstorms, lack of rain. Something that you can solve in an indoor facility. Bringing technology together to making it even more efficient is very important. Having climate control software and hardware, having ventilation systems, irrigation systems, having the right nutrients for your plant and the vehicles to bring it to it. It's definitely becoming one of the forefront problems to, to solve for the past two years, especially because before the data was there, but the consequences were not there. Now we are seeing the consequences. California is on fire once a year. Australia was burning to the ground last year. We are seeing droughts. We're seeing extreme weather, extreme rain. What happens is first the problem arrives, then you start to see movers and technologies trying to solve these problems. And then investors catch up. Most investors are trying to deal with Actec like they would do with a fintech. You can't do that. I wrote an article for Mexico Business News trying to compare why Actec is different because we are limited to the physical realm, <laughs> to the realm of physics. 
You actually need a piece of land. You need sun. You need water. You need a physical, actual plan to produce pounds of produce that have shelf life that you need to transport is very different than having a fintech that you have a piece of software that's cloud-based and you can use the same code for Singapore than the code that you use for Brazil. Just not the same with agriculture. There's a lot of education that needs to happen before this is an investable area where we see a lot of efforts. It happened with the space race. It's impressive how when investors and entrepreneurs align and the government also like aligns behind one, one goal, it's just impressive what we can achieve and what humans can do. In that article that you mentioned, you wrote for Mexico Business News and also another one, how Silicon Valley said ag tech back a decade, a medium post from July 2021. Like you said, people are approaching ag tech like fintech and they're making it very hard for the, the farmers to adopt these more expensive technologies or they don't really see the need. So how can you help a farmer to see the need to improve his yields? The reality is that this business model is not as scalable as a software model just because of the realm of physics. I can't point this out enough, but we still need to invest in this space. It's not that you can't find scale. You can find scale. I've written and I've talked about this, and this is one of the core aspects of the business model at Rising Farms. A hotel company, a hospitality company, usually does not build the buildings, right? The office space, the retail space, a restaurant chain does not build the real estate. They have investors, real estate investors that take care of the facilities and lease it out to the operator. The airlines usually don't own their planes. They lease them out. You have these in a lot of industries and that's why they're able to scale, but you don't see these at the high-tech indoor farming industry. When we're able to bring this to the table, then you'll have not just an industry that is extremely important for the future of the planet, but a scalable industry that can attract more investors with less risk. With Rising Farm 2, it does seem to be a family business. Your brother Mauricio is the CEO. And there's another Mauricio, is that your dad? He's the CPO? He's my dad, yeah. <laughs> so this is, <laughs> this is funny because we are co-founders. We came together because we are very good at each of the pivotal pillars of the business, right? Starting with my dad, he has more than 25 years experience within farming, especially 20 years at high-tech indoor farming. He was the COO for two of the biggest operations in Mexico for high-tech indoor farming, from buildings to operations to stabilization of these ventures. So he has all the know-how. My brother, he's an industrial 
engineer. He has a lot of experience with certifications, with people. He has a master's in sustainability from HEC in Paris, management master's from the Norway School of Economics. And he was working at the OCED, the Worldwide Organization in Paris before he came over to Rice and Farms. And on my side, I started at finance, private equity, then I did some trading. Then I moved towards the startup realm, the high-paced growing environments with a San Francisco-based fintech called Payjoy. Then I moved to a Mexican fintech and I was hired by a San Francisco private debt fund where we invested in a lot of startups with different business models that helped me to understand the funding side and the fundraising, the investor side, the finance side of uh, business. All of the three profiles that we have, they complement each other really well to, to start a business within this industry. We have a meritocracy model where we know who's good for what, and we try not to interfere with each other's lane. Although we have a great feedback group where we are helping each other see clearly from outside our core responsibilities. It's very important for this business is one of the key things, but also financial planning, sophistication, being able to see 10 years into the future and say, how do I get to that point where I want to be and not just build something and go from there, but going at it more like SpaceX, right? With Elon Musk, he says, I want to go to Mars. What do I need to do to get there? It's not that he started with a company that wants to launch satellites. He first said, I want to go to Mars. What the step before that and before that, up to the point where he said, okay, first I need to make a profitable company that is able to build this technology so I can fund the trips to Mars. That's more or less what we are doing. We're looking into the future, what, what we want to do. We are thinking big, for example, the purchase of Rising Park. We purchased a big plot of land that's 160 acres in the Bajio corridor of Mexico. So we are able to grow for the next three to five years. That took us like a lot of creativity and risk. We are a young company and it's not like we can buy 160 acres of land from our pocket. We need to find creative ways and partners to do it. The good thing is. There's a lot of good examples of investors and companies in the U.S., especially that are getting to understand this space. We need to bring them to Mexico because Mexico is a great place to grow things. We're not just extremely close geographically to North America, which is the biggest market in the world. We also have one of the best climate and temperature deltas there is in the world. We are able to grow the same quality produce as a high-tech indoor farm in, in Canada or in the U.S., but by using 10 times less fossil fuels per square meter because of the cold. Simply put, it's too cold in Canada and in some parts of the U.S. Labor is cheaper here. Resources are cheaper here. The climate is better. 
we have access to the same technology, we can have a better business within the same space here in Mexico. The problem with Mexico is there's a lot of misconceptions and there's this aura of risk and unsophistication that we need to fix. We've been able to do that with fintech, with proptech, with, with a lot of industries where investors from the U.S., from Europe, are starting to invest very aggressively in Mexico because they see there's talent, there's sophistication, there's a market. We need to do this with agriculture, not just because we have the means, but because of the geography, which is so important. Yeah, you made an excellent point about that in your Mexico Business News article where you mentioned that you're trying to figure out how much tech is too much tech. And as you mentioned, Mexico has a very nice climate. I'm very jealous right now. <laughs> as opposed to many northern countries that also use indoor farming. So you use less greenhouse gases and you can also use less expensive materials. You mentioned in this article where you might have a greenhouse in Denmark made of glass and you have extra heating systems with Mexico because it's more of a warmer climate, you might be able to make the greenhouse with plastic materials. Yes. Yeah. Uh -huh. So that does help bring the cost down a little bit as well. There's a lot of buzzwords and technology for technology's sakes. So there's good reasons for using too much technology. Let's say if I build a glass greenhouse in Mexico, because eventually, if you look at it from a very long-term standpoint, it's going to pay up in 10 to 20 years. That's a good reason for implementing technology. A bad reason would be for it to look good. <laughs> because when you are spending more in automation, for example, in a country like Mexico, where, where labor is not as expensive as in Europe or in the US, you might be automating to the detriment of your bottom line. This is something we... We've forgotten in the past years that a business needs to make money. You might say, I have the highest of technologies at my facilities, but I'm not making money. You need to have both eventually. It's not just the future. It's not just implementing great tech, but also implementing it for us to have a good business. Because we have a good business, we can hire the best people and we can grow and we can exist for the next 30 years. Not just have an awesome business model and hype it and sell it and, and die. Yeah, that's nice. You have sustainability on multiple mm -hmm. fronts. So now you have, as you mentioned, all of these acres for Rising Parks, mm -hmm. number one. And you have some staff working with you. It's almost two years in. What stage are you at right now? So we have Rising Park. We can start building whenever we want. There's a lot of work with a piece of land like that. Not just with hydrology studies, access studies, environmental studies. You need to have water. You need to have a well. You need to have the permits for that. You need to have the... The blueprint for the best configuration for the farms to exist in this plot of land. So we've done all that to the point where we're ready to start building. 
To start building, we are racing around Doctor Series A. That's gonna allow us to kickstart stage one. Our plan A is to start these stages with real estate investors for us to be more scalable. But our plan B is to build it ourselves and later do a sale and lease back to these same investors. It happens that you might be a little early to the show where investors don't understand the importance of the industry, the returns of the industry, that this is an industry that can have scale. So you need to wait a little bit. We will be able to do that by doing this first stage within our balance sheet, with our own research sets. But hopefully we can start this Q4 of 2021 with the first stage, whether it be on our balance sheet with our own resources or partnering with a real estate investor. Real estate investors are seeing a lot of problems with their portfolios because retail assets are not as a good investment as they used to be because the pandemic just accelerated the trend of e-commerce where people don't need to go to an actual store and also with the office space. As we realize that we don't need to work at an office to make things happen, what real estate investors will start to see is as their contracts are being renewed in the next two to three years, that they're going to find that most of their tenants are not going to renew at the same rate that they did. They have a part-time office model or a completely remote model that puts them in a place where they need to diversify, find new niches, find new markets. Our business model is perfect for them because we are offering real estate assets that never stop, not for the pandemic, not for anything, and that are solving the future of food. We want to be at the forefront and perfectly prepared for that moment to happen. That's why we bought Rising Park. That's why we're ready. That's why we're racing this round for us to be ready when this catches up to us. Awesome. And I hear what you're saying with these real estate developers, but could you explain to me more of how that would work? The perfect way of working with them is with a built to suit model. Within real estate, a built to suit model is like, for example, Samsung needs a manufacturing facility in Mexico, let's say Tijuana. Normally, Samsung doesn't build this facility with their own money. A real estate fund that focuses on industrial assets builds it for Samsung and leases it to Samsung. The fund basically said, what do you need? How much are we going to spend? What technology do you want? Where do you want it? They lease it out to Samsung for 10 to 15 years. This is a good business. This is exactly what we want to do. Okay. I need this type of facility here. I have the land. This is the technology. This is how much it's going to cost. The fund knows, okay, I need to put up 10 million, $20 million to build this facility. And I'm going to lease it to rising farms in the long term. So they can have the same return or better returns that you would have with an office building with retail space, with industrial space. The problem is this is seen as a very risky investment. They are thinking that this is going to blow up and I'm going to end up with a huge 
facility with all this technology that I can't use. So first, we need to, to make them understand it's happening in the U.S., it's happening in Europe, where you have great, sophisticated corporations in indoor farming. You can have them in Mexico, like Rising Farms, for it to be a good investment. It's very important. We are already talking with a lot of real estate funds. Some of them are very close. We have letters of intent with them for this dynamic to start. It's going to be like a spark. The first real estate fund is going to find out like, hey, I can have real estate within that resilient industry that's never going to stop, that gives me the same or a better cap rate than all of my other portfolio. And this is the future of food. This is great. Let's do it, but in a big scale. We definitely want to be positioned for us to ride that wave. Okay, this sounds like it's going to be a, a very big disruption. Now I'm going to go a little bit to the negatives, the possible negatives to ask you about the environmental impact of having such a large area. There's been a lot of protests due to climate change. There have also been some protests with large companies buying big areas of land from the local farmers or the local community. So how does Rising Farms plan to work with the local community to help them develop responsibly their staff, the community in general? First, we would need to develop 20 to 30 times less land. So that's a great thing. Secondly, we grow hydroponically. That means we are not messing with the soil. What happens a lot with open field farming is that all the things that you're putting into the plant, you're putting into the soil. And each time you put a new crop in, you are releasing all the CO2 that was trapped in the soil, which is one of the mechanisms to increase climate change, we don't do that. There's a big problem in Mexico where agricultural employees are not always treated very well. Sometimes they're not paid with their welfare benefits that by law you're required to give. There's a lot of problems with education within these communities, poverty, challenging situations that they're facing that are not normally addressed by the companies that employ them. Mostly they're just hired hands. I hired you to do this and I don't care what background, what problems you have. We're facing this from another standpoint where we want to educate these people to know that they're building a CV, like someone that studies finance and wants to get into consulting and wants to get the right jobs to then get an MBA. They have an understanding that they're building a CV. Right now, we have 180 employees. So we educate our employees to know, hey, you are building your CV. You're specializing on this specific task within the greenhouse. And guess what? If you uh, learn to do it more quickly and with more quality, we pay more to people that are more specialized, that do their job better than to the newcomers. So they have an incentive of working up their ways through the ladder 
And then moreover, if they want to go to a new company or to another company that does high-tech indoor farming, they can get there with a CV saying, hey, I'm good at this, I do this better and this, this, so they can get paid more. These are people that usually get stuck with the same range of income since they are 18 to when they're 50, because it's exactly the same work paid the same. So we want them to understand that if you build a CV, you can climb, not just through the corporate ladder, but to get more income as time passes. Another thing is, unfortunately, Mexico has a lot of challenges with domestic violence, with drug abuse, especially within low-income populations. We try to give them programs, like we have a program that not just helps them psychologically, especially women. We have 67% women within our workforce, and that's 90% within senior management. So we try to educate them psychologically, but also legally to tackle these challenges. Not like you're being abused in your home. That's too bad. No, we want to show you that's not okay. The legal resources that you have to make it up, but also psychologically, it's a challenge to get out of that situation, but we can do it together. And eventually that's good for both of us because we have better quality people that do better jobs and we need less headcount in the future. Not just about technology reducing the overhead, but also having better equipped people at our company. So this is crucial. And this is one of the efforts that my brother is spearheading in the company because he has a sustainability master's and sustainability. It's not just climate. It's also the workforce. It's also what you do with the people. So that's a very important thing that we put a lot of focus on. We are also like raising our hands saying, hey, all of those companies that are not paying welfare because they say that it's not sustainable, that's not true. We have much better wages than the comparables within the agricultural industry. We have all these programs, we pay welfare, we operate within the law and we'll still make money. Now you've been speaking with me now, Pablo, for almost an hour and your English is very good. Plus Rising Farms has clients in the U.S. and Canada, Mm -hmm. as you mentioned. So besides having access to these other clients, how else has speaking English fluently benefited you? Going back, I must say that I am very lucky. It's very easy to just say, yeah, I'm smart and I'm here because I'm smart. But that's not true. Every single person needs to thank a lot of people along their way and their careers and their lives for enabling where we are now. So in my case, I was very lucky to have parents that gave me the best education possible in Mexico. And that education included English from preschool. People should know that knowing English and Excel (laughs) You could just have those two and do something successful. For me to be able to know English since I was little, 
that has given me access to a lot of content in English. I admire the U.S. a lot because of the quality content and the amount of content that you guys have. You can listen to a podcast almost about any subject you want with experts and the people that are leading their fields. There's books, there's articles, there's blogs about any subject you want. So learning English allowed me to have access to this vast amount of worldwide content that helped me develop a criteria and an IQ to be able to tackle the challenges that I've had, but also then being able to work at U.S.-based companies like fintech startups, San Francisco-based companies, where I learned a lot about how they think, how to build a company from scratch, how to work at a fast-paced environment, and a lot of things that are very important. English doesn't mean like, oh, then I can communicate with the U.S. It's having access to all this content and all these investors and all these people that are English speaking that you can have contact with. Being able to express myself on a business standpoint in English has allowed us to talk with a lot of investors, access a lot of people with other countries, not just the U.S., Canada, Europe. So I would definitely put knowing English as one of the most important things that you can do to propel not just your career, but your access to to content and ideas. Yeah, definitely. We've been doing a lot of stats today, but even on my podcast, I've said it a few times. There was a study recently that showed that most of the internet is in English. Of course, we know that, but it's 50%. Then Spanish only has about 5% of the internet. So that's a lot of information that someone would be missing if they didn't know how to read English well and understand it. Exactly. Plus, as you mentioned, these, yeah, these extra opportunities you have to talk to more people. One in four people speaks English. And of those people, probably only 25% of those are native speakers. So there's so many different perspectives that are brought in with the English language yeah. right now. But I know you have a lot of stuff to do today, Pablo. So I'm going to go ahead and wrap uh -huh. it up here. If someone wants to get in touch with you, besides your awesome podcast that you were telling me about, Vertical Ventures, to increase that access to quality content in Spanish, where else can people find you? LinkedIn, that's my name or LinkedIn. You can uh, search for me, Brighton Farms, you can find me there. And there I try to publish content or talk about topics within entrepreneurship, ag tech, agriculture. I also write for a page called Mexico Business News, like you mentioned. And there I write about a span of subjects from philosophy to agriculture, business, and entrepreneurship as well. Okay, that's great. Pablo, thank you so much for being here with us today. And as a last note going out, what would you tell to someone that is trying to get used to this pandemic new color lifestyle? First, thank you very much, Gabby, for the space. I had a great time talking to you. And my advice would be have less fear. Pay less attention to the rules. Pay more attention to what you want. 
really know that no one knows what they're doing. Doesn't matter the money, the position, the the job. They don't know what they're doing. They're dealing with things as you are doing right now, step by step, figuring things out. Fear is the biggest creativity destructor because we have all these rules that are made for us to navigate through life. Automatic pilot mode that just leaves us in the majority of the cases having a lot of regrets, have less fear. I haven't heard yet a single person that regrets uh, being brave. Wow, that's a great point to end with.